Hello and a very warm welcome to uh, this evening's event. My name's Tom Conley. I'm the editor of the website Legal Cheek and chair of tonight's uh, climate change focused discussion. Many would argue that climate change uh, and its impact on business uh, is the commercial awareness topic of the moment and potentially for the foreseeable future. Um, protests across the world led by organisations such as Extinction Rebellion and key figures such as, you know, teen eco-campaigner Greta Thunberg are putting increased pressure on governments and as a result businesses to take stronger action on global warming and the so-called global climate crisis. This in turn is generating an increased demand in legal advice by businesses on how to adapt to such things as these new low-carbon legislation and avoid being caught up in the rising number of claims against companies for breaching these legislations. Recognising this, Clyde & Co launched a cross-practice area climate change resilience initiative to help advise its clients on the new challenges they face. This, as you'll hear this evening, spans a number of the firm's key practice areas. With this in mind, I'm delighted to say that I'm joined to my right by a panel of Clyde Co's leading lawyers in this area. So before we get the Q&A underway, I think it might be appropriate to hand over to the panel, maybe just to briefly introduce themselves, a little bit about their background and route into Clyde Co and what they do now at Clyde Co. Okay, hello everybody. I'm Jane O'Reilly, I'm an associate to Clyde Co. I have been with the firm since 2016. I joined as a newly qualified solicitor and my route into this area has been rather organic. Um, my practice area deals with uh, floods, uh, damage from fire, drought, um, and various other environmental impacts um, on property and um, also product liability claims. And from that, and also my own personal interest in this area, I got to finding out what the firm is doing and um, sought to make myself available for use. Thanks, Jane. I'm Claire Hatcher. I'm a partner in our trade and energy department, and I've been here more years than I'm prepared to admit. <laughs> My name's Wynne Lawrence. I'm a senior associate in the specialty and in international risk and reinsurance department. Um, so my practice area is insurance and reinsurance litigation. I am Canadian as you can probably tell from my accent, although I call myself a Londoner now, having been here for 13 years. Thank you very much, Wynne, and thank you very much, panel. For our opening question, I have down here is Connie Fan. Connie, just the microphone's on its way, Connie. Hi, um, good evening. So my question is, how did the idea of setting up the Climate Change Initiative come about? Wynne, before you, maybe it's probably wise to give a bit of context to what it is for the students that aren't aware of it, and then maybe explain how it came about. Okay, so I think probably I can wrap those two together. Um, in 2015, as some of you might be aware, uh, Mark Carney, Governor of the Bank of England, delivered a speech at Lloyd's of London. So that's the insurance market right around the corner from here, and where many of our clients as an insurance-focused firm are based. Um, and the market in which they participate. That speech was called The Tragedy of the Horizon. And that spoke about the tragedy of the problem of climate change and the shocks that it will have to our planet and to therefore our economies and the financial system as a whole. 
And the tragedy being that it is not in any one entity's interest, nor is it in uh, the short-term interest of business or the financial system to make the changes that need to be made in order to protect the financial system in the longer term. Following that speech, um, a couple of people here at Client Co. started putting our heads together and thinking about how this existential challenge to uh, the world and to the work that we do and the markets in which we operate will affect our clients across our practice areas. It started as it started with Mark Carney's speech with insurance and reinsurance. And um, since then, we've gathered momentum and more understanding about how issues such as the transition to a low-carbon economy or the physical impacts of a changing climate, which we're already seeing around us, are going to affect other sectors and other types of business that we serve. So it was initially a project which was focused on the insurance issues related to climate change and in particular the protection gap. So that's the gap between the um, losses which are insured and uninsured every year. Um, the number of losses globally is growing year on year as a result of increased incidents of extreme catastrophic disasters. And it's particularly an issue in emerging markets, which is also where Clive Co. has a strong presence. So we've been looking at this from an insurance lens, and of course insurers are, uh, enable the capital flows and enable the um, flows of the global economy, and we've been looking at it across our different practice areas as well. Claire, Jane, in, in terms of the areas that you work in, uh, how, how have you touched upon this cross-practice area and the kind of work you're doing? Yes, I think the interesting thing from my perspective is that um, I first started being aware of environmental law and its practice um, in 2000, uh, when I had a client, um, which is a local authority working in Borough Council, and they uh, won an, a, a Queen's Award for their environmental policy. And they were the one of the first local authorities to actually implement uh, district heating and power system in Woking Town Centre. Um, and at that stage, it was very novel, and nobody had done it before. And I was very interested in renewable work and, and wanted to see that develop. And it's suddenly come off the time. But um, I have, over those years, done various things in the renewable sector. Uh, and, and, I, and I think now we've got um, most corporates starting to think properly about this area. It really was um, part of our practice that we do within our team. Um, the the flooding work in particular, um, it's, it's just increasing um, immensely. And um, people are complaining and making uh, lots of claims um, that the, you know, the infrastructure is not there or the responses aren't there. Well, in truth, that may be the case, but actually... Um, the bigger picture is is that the the climate is changing, and um, really the infrastructure needs to be responding quicker, or needs to be there, and um, government and institutions need to be responding quicker to this changing environment when previously they hadn't anticipated having to do that. Um, and one area in particular that we work in is doesn't sound very snazzy, but tree root subsidence. And that is prolific, um, as you can imagine, from desiccated soil, from drought, um, 
it's it's a real issue and in London in particular as London you may know is built um, a, a lot on clay and clay soils are prone to this and so you get a lot of property damage claims resulting from that um, so so across the board really in our practice area we're seeing increases um, in climate related um, claims and whilst it may not be climate change cases per se it certainly has an impact on the nature of those those matters and could you speak um, more generally about the advice that you're giving clients? Obviously, insurance seems to be one area where it's impacting severely this kind of climate, even if it's not direct, as you say. What kind of advice are clients asking for? Are they asking, where do I stand in regards to these natural disasters? Or is it, how, is it from an insurance perspective, how do I avoid paying out claims for st stuff like this? It really does depend on the sector yeah. um, and what the client is seeking to do and where they're acting. Um, certainly for local authority clients um, who, or you know, local authority insureds of our insurer clients, um, they're looking for advice on how to update their environmental plans, um, how to be responding to these situations and how that's informed by case law. So um, where a court might consider what is reasonable, how frequently um, should one be inspecting one's trees? Um, when should you be ramping that up? Where's the policy that dictates that? Is that suitable? Um, is that sufficient? Do we need to reconsider it? So it's, it's really assessing, um, like I said, the infrastructure and the frameworks that are in place and, and working out are these going to be suitable going forward? And as, I, as we'll talk about later, um, the difficulty is... Scenario analysis has traditionally looked at being backward looking, look at the trends, and then we'll be able to predict the future. But with climate change, that's messing all that up. So we're no longer able to be so backward looking and um, it's presenting a new challenge across the board. Claire, you looked poised to say something. <laughs> yes, I, I was just reflecting. I mean, there's no doubt that the insurance industry is where the heat of, of this um, problem, I think, is, is hitting economically. Um, and, and so our insurance practice has seen quite a lot of emphasis on this area. Um, when I look at it, I lo I'm looking at um, people who may be building things, building a new power station, uh, building a refinery, mm -hmm. and what level of duty of care do they have to take as an engineer, um, as a builder and constructor? Should they be think thinking about you know, earthquake possibility that's one in 100 or one in 50 or one in 20? And whether you're professionally competent and whether you're making the right reasonable judgment will very much depend on that analysis. And I was very struck when I heard that um, the American Construction uh, Engineers Construction Association uh, had actually um, said that people should now take climate change uh, risk into their uh, professional uh, um, consideration. I think that's a very significant development. We now have another question from Samantha Pham. Since the launch of the Resil Resilience Initiative, what has been the most challenging task you have faced yet? I, I think I've indicated earlier that I've been looking at this area for a very long time. Uh, and one of the things that I found very encouraging was that I felt that we were suddenly developing a sort of interest at a critical mass level in the problem. But actually, th in some ways, things haven't advanced. And I, I think we need mandatory standards um, for things to really change at, at sort of development level. I think the challenge at the moment is that there are now, um, I'm, people might have heard of the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, which came out with recommendations as to how companies can um, improve their governance around climate-related issues and assess their climate exposures 
both to their physical assets and supply chains as well as their transition risks. And um, and I think it's it's recently I think at the UN um, climate summit last week um, or two weeks ago now um, there was. Uh, report as to how many companies are actually disclosing and those that are even disclosing against those rec recommended standards of which there are 11 re key recommendations I think the average is two two something 2.5 so uh, even those com companies that are trying to grapple with this issue and are trying to look at their operations are are not doing it thoroughly and there seems to be a need for um, better metrics better understanding about what's required what's needed and also, as Claire said, um, potentially mandatory reporting coming in due, due course. But that's a journey that a lot of people are on at the moment and that people are starting to think about quite seriously, particularly in, um, in financial institutions. Sophia from Warwick. So my question is, um, which sector, in your opinion, has seen the biggest change as a result of increasing emphasis on climate change? Perfect, thank you. So we've obviously touched upon insurance being the big one, but in terms of if you had to rank them, so to speak, so insurance is near the top, what other industries are facing, facing challenges through uh, the climate change? Well, as you rightly say, we have touched on insurance and it really is insurance and financial sectors are facing the changes immediately. Um, just to expand a little more on um, how it's impacting on insurance, there's firstly you have the physical sense. So with the increase in extreme weather, of course, you have an increase in catastrophic loss claims. Um, you know, you have uh, a a huge increase in, in hurricanes and cyclones. Um, in fact, the, the largest seven out of 10 cyclones um, have occurred since 2006, uh, according to the National Centre for Atmospheric Research. Um, uh, of course, there's wildfires. So we saw last year with the Californian wildfires, it's the worst that they've ever seen. Um, and there's, a, of course, a huge issue across the world with heat wave and drought. Um, I'm sure some of you will have seen that time lapse of um, the excuse my pronunciation, is it Pusal? It's incredible to see such a huge body of water dry up so quickly. And that is a water resource, a one of five, feeding a, a huge city um, and surrounding areas. It's, uh, you know, humans can't survive without water. Um, it's simply that simple. Um, and so with that, insurers are facing um, huge claims um, and, and it, it's got really wide-reaching effects. So it's not just um, dealing with the immediate, okay, there's a flooding, so maybe there's property damage. You've got to think about how, how it's extrapolated from that. So, for example, in 2011, there were, the, um, there were the floods in Thailand, and of which I think the total economic cost was $45 billion, um, of which only $10 billion were insured. Um, so that touches on what Wynne mentioned earlier, that there's a huge protect protection gap, particularly in emerging markets. And if you think about how much manufacturing is going on in Thailand, how much that, that knock-on effect was huge. It had a huge impact on, I think it was the um, car sales in the US and Canada for Honda. Um, factories, uh, thousands of factories had to close. Of course, then there's the human cost. Workers can't get to work. Workers may even have been injured during those events. And then it's, there's harm to agriculture. So people aren't being able to get their food. There's food scarcity. And then, you know, when you have massive storms, there's pollution and contamination. 
So there really are wide-reaching consequences. So when you think about insurance, it's not just a claim on a building's insurance policy. There's business interruption. Um, there's there's loss of revenue for businesses worldwide. So if something happens on one side of the world, you feel it on the other side. So there's the physical sense. And then, of course, there's um, changes for underwriters in the wake of climate change. So underwriters, I touched on earlier, the scenario analysis, they're having to change how they're looking at all this stuff. Um, and instead of being so backward looking, they need to change their tactics. So that's something else that's changing. So this is all things that the insurance industry are having to respond to. And then, of course, there's the transitional sense, the adaptation. So there's also opportunity. And um, when I know... Um, knows a bit more about this, but there was a coalition of hotel owners in Mexico, it was in Mexico, um, who obtained the first natural asset insurance for a coral reef. Um, so if the coral reef was damaged in a the storm, then they could seek to claim on this insurance policy. That's pretty novel. Um, so it's changes like this that, that, that you're seeing developing in this area. So insurers are very much on the front line on this. And then, of course, um, there's the liability risk. So um, directors' liability, failing to respond or failing to consider climate um, in their dis business decision-making um, practices and also in disclosures. The insurance market is very, very clearly affected. But you have to admit that the energy industry has seen a huge change. Uh, and I think that um, there are two obvious symptoms of that. One is that all the um, oil majors are looking at new technology, getting into renewables. So BP has gone beyond petroleum in theory, um, and they're starting to relabel and rebrand themselves. I think another interesting uh, reflection is how badly um, if you, a particular sector can get it wrong. And here, if we look at General Electric, it took over Alstom. And Alstom had a lot of gas turbine uh, manu plant manufacturing. And um, they got the, the market wrong. They hadn't anticipated the development of renewables and their share price absolutely tanked. Um, so uh, I, th I think, you know, most industries are affected in one way or another. Uh, and, and, and I think certainly the energy industry is in the front line. Thank you very much, Claire. One final thing. <laughs> on insurance. <laughs> Not on insurance. Finance. So Winnell's already mentioned that the PRA, um, uh, it, they issued a supervisory statement in April 2019. And um, within this statement, um, that they're requiring institutions that they regulate to um, have a senior management function appointed to oversee climate risk and to um, have a climate risk response plan in place by uh, the 15th of October 2019. So in finance in particular, that's seeing changes. So you're seeing regulatory bodies stepping in and starting to amp it up, saying, OK, guys, you need to start considering this now. Um, and, and similarly with shareholder activism, um, I'm sure you will have heard of Share Action um, and also Climate 100 Plus initiative. Um, these are institutions that apply pressure, uh, seek to... Um, curb emissions, improve governance, and also strengthen climate-related uh, financial disclosures from within institutions. We'll jump ahead, and uh, we'll now get a question from Ali from UCL. Hi. So you've talked about how climate change poses serious legal risks to businesses, but what opportunities will the transition to low-carbon practices generate? Well, there are clearly immense opportunities. Um, if you just look at what we've done in the UK, we've set a zero-carbon target by 2050. 
The only way that that's going to be achieved is by a huge amount of technological change. Um, and so as a country, we're well placed to uh, expand in the energy and renewable sector. We've got the, the skill set. We've got the green finance. And I, I, I was just yesterday um, talking to a bank. It was very interesting with a, a particular client who wants to get funding. And they have a concept of, um, it's called integrated bio uh, refining, I think. Uh, and what it does is it takes waste uh, and it converts waste into its basic components and rebuilds it to, into, into new byproducts. And it's entirely a bio process. So it, it op opens up this sort of exciting opportunity of using all this waste we've got to create something new. And very little is left over at the end in terms of waste, a few very small percentage of, of minerals. And if you think of adding a, a, a unit like that at a waste recovery site, you no longer have the waste to take abroad. You've actually solved your waste problem and you've actually created something useful. And I think that's a very good example of the way that there will be opportunities for people to develop the right products, the right technology um, to, to, to help us achieve the zero carbon targets. I think it's just something that we are um, very conscious of emphasising because I think particularly with something like climate change, it could be quite depressing. Um, and there's uh, you can you can spend a lot of time thinking about how you're going to actually get this transition in the place that we'll need it to be in the next 10, 20, 30 years in order to to facilitate the, what needs to be done in order to keep to our carbon budget. But I think it's really important to think about the vast opportunities, and it's actually quite exciting to think about the growth of the green economy, particularly as you're starting out in your careers in your legal careers. And uh, the, the many minds in this room applying themselves to this big problem, um, it's, it's an exciting opportunity to find solutions and to work collaboratively across different uh, practice areas, as we have done in our firm, but also to work across different disciplines from science to law to engineering. Um, so I, actually, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, excitement for the opportunities that are going to come about. I think I, I heard from the Environment Agency there's $1.9 trillion uh, of investment needed in green technologies and, and adaptation projects every year for the next 10 years. And, and if that investment is going to come through green bonds, et cetera, there will be many opportunities to get involved and, and capital will fund projects that we can all be involved in. You've just mentioned the phrase green bonds there. What are your thoughts on green bonds and its impact on tackling climate change? Well, green bonds are an interesting phenomenon. I mean, they first got going in 2007 when the European Investment Bank and the World Bank created a green bond. And the idea is that the proceeds of the bond should be used for some suitable environmental purpose. Um, since then, we've seen people like Apple and NG and others also issue their own corporate bonds. Um, there are several plus sides. One of the plus sides is that you can often get a tax subsidy associated with them. Um, another is, I think, the um, public perception, people looking at this from a, 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 a governmental publicity point of view, very much want to be associated with something that's seen to be positive and, and, and doing good to the environment. 
But um, there are sort of issue, other issues which are that um, it can be a lot more expensive to issue a green bond because the whole point of them is that you need to do a lot of monitoring to make sure the funds are appropriately dispersed. Uh, and that can make them a more expensive way of raising capital. So there are pluses and minuses, and I think they're one tool among a number that will be used. At this stage, do we have a spontaneous question? Anyone got a bit? Yeah. <laughs> got quite a few. Maybe the closest there, the lady at the back. My question is, I'm from a small island developing nation in the Caribbean, and obviously uh, climate change is massively affecting us. Um, changes in the law in the Caribbean are not uh, going to solve this problem. So to what extent do you feel like countries, developed countries, um, who really need to make the change, like in the States, are taking into account the fact that basically if they don't make a change soon they're going to write off a whole region of the world i think that's a very interesting question and i i i've for a number of years volunteered with the legal research institute or lri uh, and what it does uh, and, and i think this is the only way forward in practice is um, it assists lesser developed countries which don't have large capital resources on a pro bono basis um, in helping them to negotiate at climate change conferences. So every time there's a UNFCCC um, convention, they, they set up a, a help desk in London. People like yourselves can volunteer if you're interested. And lawyers with experience of environmental matters give free advice to the governments as they're negotiating. Uh, and the whole point, I suppose, of Coyote at the beginning is that you have those who um, are lesser developed who need assistance to transition uh, and therefore had various credits. The difficulty is um, the failure of you know, the US to play ball. Um, and uh, if you don't have a major player like that and you don't have a unanimous collective approach, um, it's very difficult to, 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 to do that much. But I think the Paris Convention does still have some traction. Uh, and uh, I mean, it doesn't really answer your question. Uh, but <laughs> I think some people are trying to do something about it. Dominic Armstrong. Hi, um, I was just wondering um, what you thought was the best way for law firms to address the problem of climate change in terms of whether they should be looking to invest in investigation departments or to moving um, towards it's a very interesting question and, and I think it, the answer is both. And actually that's something at Clyde & Co because we have a very strong litigation practice that it very much, um, the kinds of things that we see in litigation very much inform our advisory and transactional practice and there's a, a very harmonious relationship between the two because both of them relate to uh, seeing what how the legal landscape is changing through the evolution of the common law, and you can certainly see that occurring with climate cases that are being brought, um, and there will be a need for lawyers to be involved in those cases. Um, and then from that, that informs what legal standards arise, and also what uh, new legislation comes about, particularly where cases are brought against government governments in order to up their game on, on what they're doing in terms of um, climate adaptation and mitigation, so reduction of greenhouse gas emissions, as well as, as, well as properly adapting to the changing climate around us. So th there's a role for both, and uh, particularly from a corporate angle, there's a role to be involved in, um, in litigation and there will be more litigation, whatever whatever its source. It may not be labelled a climate change case, 
but as Jane really ably demonstrated, there will be a lot of litigation around climate impacts. Um, it's not a problem that's going away, and, and we haven't adapted ourselves, and there are externalities um, to, to operations, and so there will be plenty of cases on the horizon as a result of that. But then there's also more and more regulation, so there's a, a strong advisory role that, that lawyers can play in helping their clients navigate what is a fast-moving field of law and regulation, actually. The, I think there's been a 20-fold increase in climate law and policy worldwide since the Kyoto Protocol. So it's, it's a, a growth area. I'd say one way of actually looking at that is I think it's about the fundamental distinction between um, people who are transactional lawyers who, um, and forgive me, uh, <laughs> Jane and, and, and Wynne, but who want to get new things done. Um, and, and that's very much what I've been doing. And I like to work cooperatively with people in order to achieve a result. And so you build a new factory or you... Um, you, you actually get a grant so somebody can do works to maintain a, uh, a container flood. Uh, and the other side of it is, 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 is the litigation side. Um, and I think it's a different approach um, and, and, and it suits different temperaments, but undoubtedly uh, both, both kinds of lawyers will be needed. And one thing I would just add is um, I often have colleagues coming to me or clients coming to me. Um, I'm a litigator by trade, but they will ask me how they should avoid exposure. Say, look at this policy. Where are my weak links here? And, and get a litigator's eye on it. So actually, as a litigator, sometimes you are asked, asked to just have a look at it from, from the other side. Um, so quite often, then they're not so separate. They can be quite close together. Thomas Fox isn't in attendance, is he? I've got him down as not being able to attend. He had an interesting question where he says, given the awareness around these issues associated with climate change and how they're relatively new, how efficiently has the legal framework which govern these issues been able to keep pace? And it'd be interesting to know what the panel's thoughts on, you know, is the legal framework currently up to scratch? I think legal frameworks always run behind what's going on in, in, in the economy. Um, I think we've got some mechanisms which which are, are promising, but um, if you look at battery storage, um, one of the solutions to the fact that renewables are intermittent is battery storage. So that's something that you need to support and develop. Um, when you look at it from a regulatory point of view, believe it or not, we've had a debate about whether or not somebody who operates a battery storage uh, facility needs a license or not. Now, it's a criminal offence to um, generate, uh, transmit or supply electricity without an appropriate licence or exemption. Uh, and I think, I think actually Ofgem have now addressed this, and, and, but I don't think it's yet in legislation. They finally determined that a battery storage operation is a form of generation uh, and so should have a generation licence or exemption. And I think that's a very good example of where um, the tools that the lawyers have are not available quickly enough um, to address some of the, the problems that arise. We had a, sh a few hands up when I said if anyone's got a question. This gentleman down the front. Hi. My, my question relates to the lack of uh, disclosures um, and the standardised disclosures regime. So if climate risk is affecting certain companies and so affecting the supply chains, why isn't this something that investors are taking into account and pushing for? I think they are. Um, I think one of the most interesting developments um, is that banks actually 
uh, are going to be starting to look at this. I mean, I've seen this with the equator principles, um, which are about good environmental practice. Uh, and once the banks adopt it, and they require every company to which they lend money uh, to comply with the equator principles, then de facto, every company has to comply. Uh, and my understanding is that um, there are groups of investors, um, I, I can't remember their names off, off the top of my head, but there are groups who are uh, beginning to require the uh, companies for w in which they are invested to comply with various um, environmental standards and assess their climate change risk. But that's different from having a, I mean, that's an, an investor pressure. That's different from having a mandatory statutory requirement uh, to, to, to disclose. We now had a, a really interesting question from Magdalena. She asks, uh, what can law firms do in order to be more eco-conscious in their practices? In short, lots. Uh, they can do lots. Um, they can become a member of the Legal Sustainability Alliance. Um, lots of them are, we are. Um, and that encourages firms to disclose their um, climate practices, um, their environmental footprint, um, so on and so forth. Um, at our firm, we have environmental pledges. Um, we've got a champions, environmental champions network, as well as our resilience associates groups. So that's people who may not necessarily be working in um, the resilience team, but are still passionate about this issue and want to get involved with initiatives that the firm are doing firm is doing. Um, we also have a policy that um, covers efficient energy use, travel, paper, um, waste, water, uh, procurement. But what law firms can do, generally speaking, is um, assessing their carbon footprint, uh, carbon offsetting, sourcing renewables, going paperless, and you know travel reduction, and also using your legal skills in this area, um, putting them to good use. Thank you very much, Jane. Um, incredibly, that's been our hour. Um, so please put your hands together for the panel.